Welcome back to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I'm Ben Azevedo, your backseat driver. Who taught you how to drive? I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and voiceover artist, your navigator. And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapy associate, learned to drive from Dr. Don, your mechanic. Which leaves you in the driver's seat, listener. You ready to take over the family business? is by Mark Glimsher, president of Pace Gallery and son of renowned art dealer Arnie Glimsher. You have to come to peace with the idea that you're going to do the same thing that your father did, and your father was pretty great at it. You also have to come to grips with the fact that he started it from scratch and you are never going to do that. It's an internal struggle that took me 20 years to untangle. Last week, we talked about foes and romances in the workplace. We're doubling down on the romance part and talking about family-owned businesses this week. Now, not all family-owned businesses specifically involve a romantic relationship, but they certainly have some different challenges and characteristics than a business that doesn't include family relationships. So, Don, are family-owned businesses a big thing? Are there many of them, or is it not that common? Family-owned businesses are actually a huge thing. In 2018, the Small Business Administration stated that 64% of the United States' gross domestic product were produced by family-owned businesses. 60% of U.S. employment comes from family-owned businesses. 78% of new job creation comes from family-owned businesses. And these are not just small businesses. 35% of the Fortune 500 are family-owned. That's way more than I thought. I mean, that, for those first three statistics, that's well over half for all of that. I'm surprised. Yeah, family-owned businesses are the economic engine of the United States. So two of the largest family-owned businesses in the U.S. are common household names, Walmart and S.C. Johnson. So we're not necessarily talking about small businesses here. I mean, some of these family-owned businesses are huge, huge corporations that started out, I guess, as family-owned back in the day, but they certainly have thousands and thousands of employees now. So what defines a family-owned business is that the family still retains a controlling amount of the shares of the company. So they're in control of the business. So even if it's publicly traded, like uh, Walmart and SC Johnson, the family owns 51% of the company or more. Gotcha. That makes sense. So prior to the 2000s, 30% of all family-owned businesses made the transition to a second generation. In the last five years, that's dropped to 19%. Why do you think it, it dropped? Well, so I don't have any theories on this, but the theories that are out there from the business people who are looking at it is that many of the millennials don't want to take on the family business and feel free to reach out and do things their own way and to track their own future. Whereas before, in prior generations, the pressure from a family-owned business for the offspring to go into the business was much greater. It's kind of cool that millennials are feeling, I guess, less pressure from parents to take over the family business, or they're feeling more rebellious and wanting and are able to say no to parents who are trying to pressure them. Or a little of both. True. And then there's me, the bad millennial, who's now working for her dad like a boss. 
Well, it'll be interesting to see if you choose to have children and if those children make it into the same business because 12% of family-owned businesses make it to a third generation and just 3% make it to a fourth or more generation. Yeah, by then they've learned better. (laughs) Sometimes. And recognize that these family-owned businesses are business generators. So often a family-owned business will create three, four, or five more businesses, ancillary businesses, connecting businesses, supplier businesses that family members take on. So they become kind of this big conglomerate. Also, a generation is a pretty long time. So a a fourth generation is many, many years after that business was founded. I mean, things change a lot in that time. So I could see that going down just because things are different and there's other stuff to do. Or like you said, it's a different business related to the original business, but not the same thing. So one of the businesses that I came across while I was doing the research for this was a mortuary business in the Midwest, Missouri or Kansas, one of those two. It's a 160-year-old business. Hmm. It has been there for an extraordinarily long time. And it was really interesting reading about them and reading about, I think it's the fifth or sixth generation that is now operating the business and and rising to leadership in it, about how difficult it was for them to have new ideas that were accepted by the people who had been doing this for over a century. (laughs) You know, there are tried and true ways. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of part of the uh, industry, though. Yeah, I mean, it is. Although every industry has changes and every industry evolves. Yes. I've actually done a little bit of reading about, weirdly, the funeral industry. And it is interesting to me, though, there are innovations, right? Right. There are like better ways to deal with human remains, but we won't change to them because death is a very touchy subject in most cultures. I mean, most cultures take death very seriously. Dear family, why are you guys reading up on dead thing? I am fascinated by it. I I was just reading up on a family-owned business that was an example of the challenge of moving from generation to generation. Honestly, Kim, this is a pure happenstance. I was looking through my list of odd articles, and there was one about a different method of human remains disposal and why it like doesn't catch on because it's actually I think less expensive and less bad for the environment than cremation and burial, but it freaks people out. So nobody's going to do it, you know? What is it? Because now you have to tell me, but we're off track. It is a liquid decomposition process. So it's basically what naturally happens to your body, but sped up in liquid via chemicals. Yeah, it's super interesting. Like if we were chill with it, you end up with like all of these resources. And there's a lot of stuff in the human body that's still useful. So Ben, have you read the book Soylent Green? Um, I'm familiar with it. I've not read it. You should read that book. After this having is read not it. suggesting that people eat <laughs> dead bodies. It's more like you could fertilize some crops with parts of this if you wanted. Okay, Obviously, eat dead bodies. Saying, fertilize okay. crops and I'm going to eat the crops from the dead bodies. All right. Listen, it's the circle of life. Listen, I spend my free time reading about the domestication of eggplants. So let's get back on topic. All right. So the Harvard Business Review noted that one of the advantages of a family-owned business is that they tend to be thinking about the next generation instead of the next quarter. And so they tend to be more stable and financially responsible. Do they also outperform non-family-owned businesses? Actually, yes. Hmm. On several parameters, they outperform those businesses. Cool. 
So other interesting things that popped up while I was doing the research for this, currently nearly a quarter of the family-owned businesses in the U.S. are led by women. And of all of the family-owned businesses that were surveyed for this, this was by the Small Business Administration, 31% indicate that the next successor in the business is a woman. Yeah, woman power. Seriously, female-owned family businesses are the fastest-growing segment of family businesses. This is powerful for lots of different reasons. One of the reasons is leadership in a female-owned business tends to be 10 years younger than in a male-owned business. And loyalty tends to be stronger for female-run businesses than it is for male-run businesses. Just interesting little tidbits, in fact. All right, cool. It seems like there are a bunch of advantages to having a family-owned business. So what are some issues that family-owned businesses face? Well... It's a family. So you have the inherent dual relationship that we talk about a fair amount. And we spoke, well, I guess I read the quote earlier that indicates that following in your parents' footsteps can be really, really scary and really challenging. There can feel like there's a lot of pressure of expectations of performance and growth from the original owner down to you that just starts to feel overwhelming and can really mess with your mindset on things because it just becomes this larger than expected experience. Another big issue for family-owned businesses is the innovation that happens over the years. Older generations tend to have a specific way of doing things. And as technology increases, as things change, it gets really hard to convince them to try new things. I am blessed in that when I come to my boss and I'm like, hey, check out this cool new online thing that I've found. He's usually like, cool, make it happen. And then I have to teach him. So it kind of bites me in the butt at the end, but <laughs> hey, I'll make it work. It can also be really hard for some parents to allow their children to be viewed as an adult and to have viewpoints that are different. And for some kids, it's hard to have different views than your parents and being able to vocalize that. This all goes down to that communication that we like to talk about. I was going to say this loops back to lots of stuff we've talked about before and having a strong relationship with your kids, a strong relationship with your parents, strong family ties and relationships and that ability to communicate, to navigate this kind of stuff. Yep. All them communication skills, rolling them out and using them effectively is really hard, especially, and I can speak primarily from the child, the child of my boss. Communicating can feel really strange, especially when you're trying to communicate as an employee versus a child, because you talk about and you respond to those two roles very differently. And it's kind of this weird cognitive shift to be like, this is my boss that I am talking to versus this is my dad. You know, I consistently refer to him as boss when I need him to be in my professional brain and papa when he's in my Papa brain, I guess. I don't know how that <laughs> Which works. Which is why you call him both on this podcast, because who knows? That's correct. And sometimes Don, but that feels weird for me. This all goes into those weird complexity, multiple relationship type things. You know, we always wish there was that clear cut bucket that we talked about at the beginning of this entire podcast, but all of our buckets are enmeshed and Understanding the different contexts and different ways you interact with family members between family business and family engagement. So family parties, marriages, all of that other stuff that's not necessarily a work end. 
what do you do if your uh, family members aren't working out so well as employees or business partners? How do you go about firing your family? <laughs> maybe maybe Don and Kim can give us uh, like a like a role play example. <laughs> Well, so here's the thing, right? This is a reality. How do you fire Uncle Tom or Aunt Sally? How do you fire them if they're not working? So the idea is you have to have really good business practices. You need to have job expectations that fit the role that they're in that are behaviorally based so that you can measure them and they can measure them and they can see if they are performing or not. And you need to be performance oriented instead of relationship oriented. But even then you're going to have at best, if we're talking about this negative situation where Uncle Tom is not contributing appropriately, at best you got Uncle Tom saying like, oh, but I'm your uncle. You can't, I know I didn't hit the thing. I'll try again better next month, but he never does. And at worst you have active corruption where you are enabling Uncle Tom to just hang on and get a paycheck, even though you know he's not doing his job. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so the, the better thing to do if you want Uncle Tom to get the paycheck is kick him out of the business and pay him to not be in the business. Damn, nice Uncle Tom. Well played. Well, because it'll tear down your business. Other people will right. see it. They'll stop working. They won't feel appreciated. Uh, this is particularly true for non-relatives in the business. It's hard. So what happens when you're the boss of one of your siblings or your cousins? How does that work? Bro, you're fired. It's it's yeah. It's an interesting set of dynamics. What happens when one sibling out of a set gets promoted by the parent who runs the business? Right. And how do you manage that relationship? Or worse, what happens when the founder doesn't have the courage to have the difficult conversations with all three or four siblings saying, I'm picking Mary to run the company and I need the other three of you to do the jobs that you've been doing as well for her as you've done for me. How do the siblings accept that? How does Mary lead them when she's the third child out of four? I'm making all this up, but... Well, we've asked a lot of questions now. Did you have any answers for it? Well, again, it comes down to make the roles behaviorally based and necessary to the business, not just, you know, I need a job for my son or daughter to do or my aunt to do. Really think about the business without having the, the familial relationships in it first, and then interview each of the family members to see where they fit best. Get them the training they need to do that job, but keep it business-oriented and then fit the family into it, and you have a better chance of success. What about expectations from the founders of the business, you know, maybe the parents, that their children will go into the same business and then the tension if the children or child have no interest in that business? Well, that's an important conversation to have. Kim, how was that for you? Because you spent years telling me you'd never go into this business. I'm still not going into your business. <laughs> uh, darling, you get up in my business all the time. Yikes. So my advice to parents would be to encourage your child to find what is interesting for them and what they want to do with their life. Having the expectation that your child take over the business or join the business inherently pushes them away. Most children are going to go through that rebellious, I don't want to do what you're doing phase. And the more you try to push it on them, the further they'll push away, typically. 
if your child's interests happen to align with what your business does, that's awesome. Connect with them, join with them on that, and talk with them about who they are and their interests in it and how it will play out. Also encourage them to work for other businesses before they come work for you. One of my big things, well, first of all, I didn't want to be a therapist. I didn't want to study psychology. I was going to be a marine scientist and I was going to study shark behavior because that's what I was going to do. Surprise. Here I am. I'm a therapist. Fun stuff. I was very intent on being a marine scientist and not interested in psychology. And when I kind of started to turn into psychology, instead of Don saying, oh, sweet, look at this business. You can come join this business. Da, 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 da. He was just like, oh, that's awesome. Have fun. Well, first he laughed for like three minutes and then he said, that's awesome. Have fun. And he let me explore it at my own pace, at my own interest and kind of explore all the different fields that exist under the realm of psychology. So there was no inherent pressure of now that you're interested in psychology, you're going to come join the business. Additionally, as I, you know, branched out and figured out other different things, and I did go work for his company for a little while in between undergrad and grad school, there was still no major push. When I got the job there, I was working in admin, and I pretty much demanded to have an interview. I didn't want it as a handout of like, oh, it's the boss's daughter. That's why she got this job. Mind you, I am also very stubborn, and that's just kind of how I want to do everything in my life, is to prove that I could do it anyway. So with each time that I've returned to working with Papa, I have always kind of pushed to do it on my own terms, to do the interview, to submit a resume. And when I eventually got my degree in marriage and family therapy, I told him point blank, I was not going to come work for him for at least a year, probably two, if ever, uh, because I wanted to go experience other bosses. I wanted to go experience and figure out what working as a therapist meant prior to joining his practice. How'd that work out for you? Listen. <laughs> I mean, it worked out great, though, right? It you was, got the experiences. I they joined you faster than I wanted to. But I know, I know. I got a lot of really good experience with really strange bosses. So, <laughs> and that's across all of the different fields that I worked in prior to joining your practice. It is exciting to think that in July of this year, I will have been working for Azevedo Family Psychology for an entire year. Yay. Whoop, whoop. That's just nice. fun to think about. What about divorce in a family business? Obviously, since you have these family relationships, divorce is a possibility. Not all family businesses are founded by a couple, but divorce could happen in any generation of the family business. How does that affect the business? Well, there are lots of different ways it can affect the business. If the spouse was integral to the business, you're losing a big chunk of what made your business successful. If the spouse was not part of the business, but claims value of 50% of the business, that can be devastating to the business as well. It has to sell off assets to cover what it owes the spouse. In North Carolina, it's a joint ownership thing, 50-50 deal with all those things. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not playing one on television. Lawyers don't kill me because I said that. So those are ways that it can affect it hugely. The other part is divorce is stressful. <laughs> and often when you're going through that process, you don't pay great attention at work. Some studies have shown that your performance degrades by 60%. 
I think we could almost expand this point to really any difficult, challenging time that you could experience in a family. I mean, a long-term illness, the death of a family member, any of this stuff is going to have more of an effect on a family business because there's going to be just statistically more people related to it in the business, right? If you're working at a big corporation and you're getting divorced, your productivity might drop by 60%, but everybody around you is fine. Yeah. If, you know, a family member dies and everyone at the family business knows this person, everybody's productivity is going to drop. Yeah. And usually those family members are in key roles. Right. It's challenging. Those are lots of different challenging things for a family. The other part is that they can come together and support one another through this. Uh, We've talked before about keeping your personal relationships and your work relationships somewhat separate, especially when it comes to romance. But how do you do this in a family business? How do you keep your personal family relationships and your business relationships separate? So do your best to try to keep work at work and home at home. And how should we do that now that we're all stuck at home all the time? Do Zoom meeting from the garage to the bonus room so that you're not in the same room and it feels like you're doing something different. There you go. It's hard, right? So when I say try to keep work at work and home at home, it's like your Thanksgiving dinner is not a board meeting. You know, don't try and resolve big issues from work when you're trying to do a family activity. Conversely, don't try to have Thanksgiving dinner in the office unless you're doing it for all your employees. Can we have Thanksgiving dinner at the office? No. During the quarantine, this is a big challenge for everybody, but if your family is all at home and working in the business and your business is running from your home, it's super hard to do this. Nonetheless, try and carve out hours. During these hours, I'm at work. And on these hours, I'm really at home doing family things. That's my best suggestion for that. But quarantine is like so strange, I don't even know. Good luck. Yeah. Another way to keep the relationship separate and keep the business healthy is set compensation based on the business need and the position, not on the relationship to the founder. This is kind of related to how you fire a family member. Right, right. Because if I have behavioral expectations and I would have those for anyone, not just a family member or a non-family member, then it becomes easier for everyone to get their work done Uh, and set targets that are appropriate to the position and then hit the targets. You got to achieve stuff. Often the values of a family-owned business are the values of the founder. Well, the family might know those values, but make that explicit across all of the the members of the company, whether they're relatives or non-relatives, so that everyone is operating from the same book. The other part is, as those values expand or change through the generations, make sure that gets updated with the company. A big thing that helps keep these relationships separate is honoring the contributions of all the generations in the company. Kim was talking about that before. I try really hard when she brings me innovations in areas that I really know very little about. The internet didn't exist when I was a kid and a young adult. Uh, It didn't exist until I was middle-aged. I want to hear her ideas. And at the same time, I want to make sure that she's not just trying to make her mark and that she's really thought through what she's trying to accomplish. The other side is she needs to push me on if I'm holding on to processes or methods out of nostalgia rather than they work well right now for our business in the current marketplace. So the last point that I want to make with this for a family-owned business is develop a succession plan and start training all the family members. 
Does that just mean a plan for success? No. This means what happens when the founder or whoever the current lead is in the company, if we're in the second generation or third generation, whoever that CEO or president or chairman of the board is, who's going to be the next one when that person retires or dies? 47% of family-owned businesses don't have a succession plan. As the founder or leader of the current generation in that family business, you have to get the courage together to have the difficult conversation, to tell some people, no, you're not going to be leading, and to tell someone you are the heir apparent, and so there are big expectations landing on your shoulders. The worst legacy, I've helped lots of family businesses over my career, and it's a terrible legacy to leave the business to several children or cousins who fight over who will lead the company when the founder dies. That's just terrible because their familial relationships get frayed and the business often gets frayed by this rivalry and, and grinding that happens. So the key thing is to base the succession plan on skills and the desire to do that position, not on the relationship to the founder or gender or age. You know, often the whole idea of the firstborn son. That isn't a necessity, and it's a big myth. It really is. Your business goes to the second-born daughter. There you go. For now, anyway. <laughs> That's right. Ben's working on his doctorate. Go, Ben, go. Can you skip the master's? Yeah, I, I did. I never got a master's. I went directly to a doctoral program. Nice. We learned a lot about family-owned businesses this week. I had no idea they were so prevalent. But with great family businesses come great family challenges, like expectations from parents and children on joining the business, managing relatives, and sometimes firing them, and coming up with a succession plan. And even during quarantine, you have to try to keep your business relationships and your work relationships as separate as possible. If you work at a family-owned business or have any questions about what we covered this week, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at questions at afpsych.com. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. Until next time, enjoy the drive. Thank you for listening to the Relationship Road Trip. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and we want to know what you think. So write to us at questions at afpsych.com. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing with your favorite podcast app. You can find more episodes of the show at RelationshipRoadTrip.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Relationship Road Trip comes out every Wednesday at 7 a.m., so don't forget to tune in next week. The Relationship Road Trip is brought to you by Azevedo Family Psychology, where they are dedicated to helping you create a life worth celebrating. You can learn more about their services at AzevedoFamilyPsychology.com. This podcast is produced by Bear Cave Audio. Bear Cave Audio provides a range of audio services, from original composition to podcast recording and editing. To learn more, go to bearcaveaudio.com or email ben at bearcaveaudio.com. Until we meet again, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back, and may the sun shine warm upon your face. Mm-hmm.